continuing in the book of Revelation. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 4. I'll give you a minute to find it in your Bible or your device, whatever. If you need a Bible, there's a red Bible in the pew in front of you. If you would follow along, please. After I look, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like a, an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, kids, you are dismissed to worship kids style this morning. And adults, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we get ready to dig into this text. God and Father, pray that you might draw near to us here, turn our hearts towards heaven, that we might behold you and hope in you. Pray that you would be with all of us, though we are sinful, as we sit under your word. Be with me, though I am sinful, as I proclaim it. Be near to all of us now, Holy Father. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to get right into it this morning. Um, if you were with us a little over a month ago when we started preaching through the book of Revelation, we said that the way to think about this book is that this book is a set of visions meant to unveil the reality of this world. That it's meant to be this unveiling of what is actually true and real about the world, but is right now invisible and hard to see. 
We used the analogy of it sort of being like the Wizard of Oz in reverse, where in the Wizard of Oz in that moment, right, they see Oz the great and terrible, but then they pull back the curtain and behind it is just this ordinary humdrum man. What the book of Revelation is seeking to do is to take our ordinary humdrum lives and pull back the curtain to reveal Oz the great and terrible sitting behind it. And this passage is really the beginning of that process. We've worked through these letters to the seven churches, and now this is kind of the beginning of that happening. And so what we're going to do this morning is, first, we're just going to work through this vision and talk about what's going on in it, and then we're going to talk about a couple of ways that it should meet us and change our lives. But first, we're going to just talk about the vision, and as we do that, I'm just going to invite you Try, some of you this will be easy and some it will be hard, but try to engage your imaginations with this, right? Because this is full of imagery and pictures, so try to be imagining this as we work through. So start in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John had had this set of visions for the churches, And now Jesus, who's the first voice he hears, addresses him and says, Come up and behold what is happening here in heaven. And then keep reading verse 2. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So John is caught up in the spirit, which is mainly just a way of saying that he's beholding these things spiritually. He's not physically going up into heaven. He's caught up in the spirit, and he's given this vision of the throne. And what becomes apparent throughout this chapter is this is really a vision of God the Father sitting on the throne. What does the Father look like in John's vision? Well, he describes him in terms of a bunch of gemstones and a rainbow, which does not mean that you're supposed to picture the Father as like a bunch of like diamonds stuck together or something, but it's pictures of like glowing color and light. That's an allusion to the prophet Ezekiel, who describes the Father the same way. In Ezekiel 1, he says this. He says, The appearance of the brilliant light all around him was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So for both John and Ezekiel, when they describe God, what they end up describing is light. And the reason they're doing that is because that's how Scripture usually talks about God the Father. Paul, writing to Timothy, describes God like this. He says, He who is blessed is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So God dwells in unapproachable light, God said. And the point of all of this is to not sort of describe God's physical appearance, but rather make the point that God, trying to behold God, is sort of like trying to look at the surface of the sun. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you can't actually see the sun. All you see is the light shining out of it. Like, I've got a telescope, which I spend a lot of money on and don't use as often as I should, my wife reminds me, but I've got a... I've got a telescope with one of those filters that filters out like 99.9% of the light. And you can see the sun, and this is what it looks like, right? That's what the actual surface of the sun looks like. But if you look up in the sky, you can't see that because the light shining out of it is so bright that it actually masks the sun itself. And if you try really hard to see it, your eyes get burned out from looking. And that is how John tries to describe the Father. 
Importantly, he's not describing an old man with a beard or some dude sitting on the throne in heaven. He just says it's light shining out from the throne. Describing it in terms of colors and brilliance. So then keep reading in verse 4. He says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So there's these 24 elders, and people debate what the elders stand for. A couple of options. One is that these are angels. Some people think these are like angels sitting around God's throne, but that's almost certainly not the case. Because the word elder in the New Testament is pretty much only used for leaders of the church. And also the crowns that they're wearing are a picture of things that human beings get in the New Testament, not of something that fits angels. So these are probably human beings. And then some people think this is an image of priests, because in the first century there were 24 orders of priests at the temple. And that's possible, but it seems unlikely again, because in the New Testament, in heaven, there's really only ever pictured one priest, which is Jesus, the high priest. And we're described as sort of God's priests on earth, but this is a picture of heaven. And so most likely, these people represent God's people as a whole. You've probably got 12 heads of the tribes of Israel and 12, um, like, apostles, leaders of the New Testament church. And it's a way of just picturing God's people in the Old and New Testament all together here represented before the throne. And then verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So a couple of details. First of all, you've got this lightning and rumbling and thunder. And if you were with us when we preached through Exodus, maybe that sounds a little familiar. Because if you remember in Exodus, when God descends on the mountain, that's exactly what it's like. It's fire and then lightning and the earth shakes and there's thunder echoing from the mountain. And so that's just a picture of the presence of God and the way the world almost trembles and draws back at God's presence. And then there's these seven torches, which probably just represent the, heaven, the, the Holy Spirit. It's described as the sevenfold or seven spirits of God, but seven just means perfection, fullness in the Bible. And so probably this is just a way of saying the Holy Spirit is coming out, shining before him. And then there's this sea of glass like crystal. And again, that image comes from several Old Testament books, including Exodus. But probably what that represents is this. Um, the Bible kind of pictures the earth as if, again, this is like a poetic way of describing it, but as if you've got the sea kind of on the earth, and then you've got the sea of the heavens up above our heads, and that's how it pictures it. And probably the sea of glass represents those heavens. And the point is that, you know, we're here looking up at the sky, seeing this clear, you know, kind of thing over our heads. And God in his throne, that's like down below his feet, right? He's above the heavens in his throne room, looking down on what he has made. And then, as we keep reading, we get to kind of the strangest part of the vision. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, we see these four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature is like a lion, and the second creature like an ox, and the third creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. We also go on to read that they have six wings, and we might be confused about what's going on with this. So first of all, this is, again, which this will be a theme as we work through these visions, straight out of the Old Testament, both Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 have visions that include these four living creatures. 
Unfortunately, this is one of those times where that doesn't help a lot because it's kind of unclear in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 what's going on as well. But basically, there's two objects, two things these creatures could be. One is that they represent the sort of uber-heavenly beings, the sort of like archangels, you know, these heavenly creatures beyond our imagining that we can't even get our head around, and John's trying to describe them. The other option is that they represent creation as a whole. There's some early Jewish um, interpretation and discussion of creation that pictures the lion and ox and eagle and human beings as sort of like the, the highest forms of creation. So they would divide things into the eagles, the highest flying animal, the ox is the highest like tame animal, livestock, the lions, the highest of the wild animals, and then human beings are the image bearers of God. So maybe these creatures just represent, you know, creation and all of the creatures in it too. And I don't know that you have to decide between those two. But the point is that there's these living creatures around the throne that represent something even beyond humanity, right? And they're also worshiping, the God, worshiping God. In verse 8, we read that those four living creatures, each with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They focus on that song, that declaration that they make. First, they say God is holy. In fact, they say he's holy, holy, holy. They say it three times, and in some ways that just means really holy. But it's also striking because um, that's the only attribute of God. That's the only description of God that gets repeated like that in Scripture. The Bible doesn't talk about how God is like just, 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 or Love, love, love. Holiness is somehow seen as the most kind of foundational reality about God. That he's holy, holy, holy. And what holiness means is that God is set apart from us by being set above us. That's what it means for something to be holy. That something is set apart by being set above us. And so God is beyond us and greater and high above us. He's holy. That's what the four creatures sing. And then we learn that the elders respond whenever they sing it. They say, it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. So you're supposed to picture this as happening over and over and over, right, to make the point. And the, the, the creatures make this declaration, and then the elders fall down on their knees and throw their thrones down, responding with praise of their own. And what they say is, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Living creatures say God is holy, and the saints respond by saying God is worthy, worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. Uh, so that is this vision that John has, right, taken as a whole. This is what he's seeing happening in the heavenly throne room right now. Now let's have a conversation about how that meets us in our world. The fundamental thing that this picture should teach us, and I'm going to go ahead and use a phrase that Earl used last week when he was preaching, filling in, but it teaches us that God is God. <laughs> that God is God, which might sound really self-evident, but bear with me. There are words that we use 
in such a way that they get stripped of their meaning, right? We use them so often, they're so familiar. Like the word awesome, right? I mean, the word awesome is supposed to mean awe-inspiring. It's like, it's like when, you're, you know, when you're standing out by the ocean and the thunderheads are rolling in and there's lightning and the waves are crashing and you feel kind of amazed and excited and scared all at once, right? <laughs> like that's what awesome is supposed to mean. But obviously, that's not what it means most of the time when people use it, right? When some bro is like, dude, this shirt is awesome, you know? I mean, he doesn't mean that he's like trembling before the presence of the shirt, right? You use it in this way that makes it kind of trite, and it loses a lot of its meaning. And that same thing often happens when we talk about God. We think about, um, I mean, we wear the idea of God out by making it so familiar. And I don't just mean like people in the world. It's like... When I see things like this, right, like this billboard, you know, I mean, I'm sure that some church thought that, you know, that that would be a good way to, to connect with people. But, I mean, when God gets circulated on that kind of level in our world, right, that's basically communicating that he's kind of in the same conceptual category as, like, real estate agents and daytime radio hosts and adult stores, right? Like, you know, like, that's the kind of, like, level that you're thinking about God on. Uh, or think about, like, I mean, I just so often hear people discuss God, right? Talk, talk about God. I mean, whether in person or on TV. And it's just so cavalier and relaxed. And it's like, oh yeah, here's what I think. You know, I've got this God thing pretty well figured out. And I hear that and I always just want to say, like, do you realize we're talking about God? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, why in the world would we talk about him that way? We need to reclaim that sense that God is God do that, let's try to name three particular things in this vision that we see. The first is that God is holy. As we already said, he is holy, holy, holy. He is above us. He somehow so dwells in light that we can't even behold him. Let me just try to convey to you, using one of the simplest ways I know, um, what that should make us feel like. So first, think about, I don't know if you've ever just thought about, but just think about how little of the planet Earth you've ever actually seen. Like, I was thinking about this. We went on vacation to Mexico last week and got to go see Chichen Itza, and I'm driving this 12-passenger rental van through rural Mexico. And, you know, you're seeing all this jungle, but you think about, like, on the one hand, wow, I got to see this cool thing. But on the other hand, there's, like, like so little of the world that, <laughs> that I've ever seen, right? Even if you spend your life traveling, you, you, you this tiny sliver of the Earth's surface, right? Never mind all the ocean trenches and, and all of that, that that nobody has seen, right? This tiny sliver of this planet that you actually have any real knowledge of. Or even just, like, like how many birds, types of birds can you name, right? Like 10, you know, maybe like 50 if you're really into birds. You know, there's 10,000 species of birds and a billion, or a million species of insects, right? Like, we, we know almost nothing about this world, and then there's eight other worlds in our solar system, right? And some of them, like Jupiter, has moons that are basically comparable in size to Earth. I mean, there's, there's a moon of Jupiter covered in frozen oceans that has, like, more ocean than the oceans on Earth, right? And we know absolutely nothing about that. And then, there, that's one, that's our solar system, and there's 250 billion plus or minus 100 billion solar systems in the galaxy, and whenever you're talking about plus or minus a hundred billion, right? <laughs> like, that's the way of saying we know almost nothing. And then there's like a hundred billion visible galaxies. And, I mean, all of that is to say, when you think about the scale of the universe, right, 
and how, how little we, we know about it. Anyone who's like, oh yeah, I've got the universe figured out, right? Like, I've got a pretty good grasp on it. We would all say, like, you're nuts. <laughs> you're a fool. You don't. <laughs> you don't. The gap between us and God is even bigger than that. In fact, I think sometimes that part of the reason God made the universe so vast is to give us this physical sense of how little we know of him. When John looks at the throne, he only sees light. Remember, Paul says it like this. He says that God um, dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is above us and beyond us. And that should give us a sense of awe, of awesomeness of God in the real sense when we talk about him, and a real sense of humility and caution in how we think about him. One of the the ways to get at that, I think, practically, um, Judeo-Christianity kind of uniquely prohibits making images of God. Uh, Scripture tells us that we shouldn't just, it's not just that you don't make images of false gods, right? But that you're not supposed to make, you know, statues of God and worship them. Um, The second commandment, actually, historically, we've understood as being about that, um, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is part of our denomination statement of faith. It says, here's one of the ways you break the second commandment, is by creating any likeness of God as the Trinity or as any one of his three persons, either internally in our minds or externally in the form of any kind of image or representation of a created being. Now you think about that, and that's actually nuts, because that says that if in your mind you just picture God as like, a, you know, a created thing, that you're actually sinning. And so initially I think we tend to react really badly to that when we hear that. But it's also profoundly true, because so many of us operate with a deeply deficient view of God, because we just end up imagining him as something less than he is, right? I mean, like, when you think about God, you picture Gandalf, or you picture... Um, Morgan Freeman in Bruce Almighty, or you picture, you know, even like this, the Sistine Chapel guy reaching down to touch Adam. And, and the, the thing we have to recognize is that all of those pictures that we have in our head of God are deeply deficient compared to God as he actually is. The thing we need to recognize is that it is, it is almost dangerous for us, and we need to be on our guard against reducing God in our minds to some being that's just like us, that's sort of similar and equal to us. So God is holy. And then coming from that, this vision also reminds us that God is central. That he is at the center of the universe and not us. There is not, importantly, a human being in the middle of John's vision of Revelation. In fact, if you pay attention, there's kind of three rings, right? And in the first ring is God seated on his throne. And then in chapter 5, we'll see the lamb is, is there too. And then in the second ring are these living creatures, right? These, you know, these four living creatures around the throne of God. And then only in the third ring are where the human beings end up sitting in heaven. God, not us, is at the center. And that's meant to visualize how the universe works. In fact, in some ways, I think that's actually an argument for seeing those living creatures representing creation. Because in the Bible, here's how the order of things works. So God, first of all, is at the center of everything. He is all glorious and all good. And what he does is as his glory shines forth, he makes the universe to manifest and show forth that glory. That his power and his goodness and his creativity, he speaks into physical form in the universe. And then what he ends up doing at the end of that process is creating human beings. 
And in one sense, human beings are the highest order of creation because he gives them authority over it. But in another sense, the order in scripture seems to be that God makes the universe and then he makes humans in his image and says, your job is to kind of steward and take care of this creation that I've made, right? So God shows forth his glory and he makes the world for his glory. And then he makes us for his glory as we kind of are his agents in charge of the world. That's the way that the Bible sees it as working. And what happens in sin, in fact, is that that order gets messed up, right? So instead of God being glorified by creation and us working in creation to glorify God, what that first sin of Adam and Eve is, is to say, like, actually, we're going to take creation and use it for ourselves and glorify ourselves with it. And therefore, we're going to learn or start to live for our glory instead of God's glory. And every sin we commit, from the big dramatic ones to the little everyday ones, are ultimately about us choosing to use creation to glorify ourselves and seek God's glory for ourselves. And here in the heavenly throne room, what we're seeing is the proper order restored in Scripture. That God is at the center, and creation exists to glorify him, and we bow down and cast down our thrones to glorify him as well. Indeed, you see that in the elders' actions, where it says that what happens is they fall down before him who's seated on the throne, and worship him, and cast their crowns before the throne. It's a sign of them saying, our glory belongs to you. That reality that God is at the center is one of those truths that on the one hand, I think in church, you you like to pay lip service to and say, oh yeah, glory be to God. And on the other hand, as human beings, maybe especially as 21st century Americans, it is really hard to believe that. I mean, I was thinking about, I was thinking about this, um, this Presbyterian missionary in the 1800s named John Patton who went to the New Hebrides, which were these islands that back then were known for having tribes of cannibals on them, and so no missionaries had gone there, kind of obvious reasons. But he, he ends up going, and he talks about while he's raising funds to go, a certain Mr. Dixon who throws this fit at a meeting, and he says, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. And this is what Patton responded with. He said, Mr. Dixon... You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> now, on the one hand, we laugh, right? You know, and that's, that's a funny story. But at the same time, I mean, listen to what he's saying. First, importantly, in our world, he is not saying oh, come on, Mr. Dixon, it'll be fine. Jesus will look out for me. Nothing bad's going to happen. He says, yeah, I might be eaten by cannibals. But because I am living and dying to serve and honor Jesus, it makes no difference to me what my fate is. And is that how we really feel about God? I feel like so much of what I end up consuming in our world is the message that Christianity is about me. It's about me having a nice life, and it's about me feeling complete, and me being affirmed, and me seeing the things that Jesus offers me, and how great Jesus thinks that I am. And there is an element of truth in some of that message, which we'll talk about in just a minute. There is a blessedness um, to life with God, but that message is also wrong if it's where we start, because Christianity is not about us, ultimately. It is not about in Christianity, God is at the center. Jesus is at the center of the universe. He created us 
to serve him and glorify him. And he saved us to serve him and glorify him. And everything that we have and everything that we are is meant ultimately to belong to that purpose of serving and magnifying the glory of God. Those are essential truths, that God is holy and that God is central. But it's also hard, right? I acknowledge that. And so here's the third thing that we need to recognize from this vision, and that is that this is good. As hard as that sounds for us in some ways, as hard as that is to believe, that reality that God is holy and central is actually one of the best, most joy-giving, most freeing things in the universe to believe. First, let me show you something here in Revelation 4 that makes me say that. When you see the thrones, look at with the elders, look at them again. It says that around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. So notice the details of these elders. They have their own thrones, they have these white robes, they have golden crowns on their heads. Now, if you back up in chapters 2 and 3, there's these letters to the churches, and throughout those letters, if you remember, there's all these rewards that are promised to the churches. It says, you know, seek to be faithful, follow me, and you'll be blessed and rewarded. Let me just read some of those parts of that. So, for example, in Revelation 2, Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to whom, to him I will give authority, which is a picture of being enthroned, over the nations. In chapter 3, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name from the book of life. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. All of which is to say, here's the point that John's trying to make. He's actually saying this vision of heaven with God at the center and humanity falling down and worshiping God, that vision is actually a vision of our reward. The reward that we are being promised, the blessing that scripture promises, is that we get to participate in that and be a part of that. Here's the big idea behind that, that is really essential to making sense of the Bible. And that is that true human greatness is measured by the greatness of what we serve. True human greatness is always measured by the greatness of what we serve. The lie of sin is that we think that if God is great, if he's central, that that somehow diminishes us. But the truth of scripture is that the greater God is, and the more we live for his glory and serving him, greater our lives actually become. I mean, that's true throughout the story of the Bible. We mentioned Eden and what happens when Adam and Eve sin, but think about the choice they're actually making there, right? Like, here is God, all glorious and worthy God, and he puts them with authority over all of creation, and he says, kids, it's yours. Work and steward it, you know, and, and they take all of that, and they trade that for what? I mean, for, for, for a piece of fruit, right? You know, like, they, they get a full belly, and they lose the dominion and image-bearing of God over the whole world. Sin always works like that. The more you put yourself at the center of things, the smaller you become. I mean, even on a human level, we recognize that, right? You think about, like, two people, and one of those people works hard, 
um, at his job trying to build up a company and works hard in his marriage trying to serve and love his wife and works hard with his kids loving them and raising them right and invests in his neighborhood and community um, and the other person just lives for his appetites right feeding himself and working when he wants to and feels like it and you know doing whatever he wants and we all recognize that the first person even though they're living for themselves much less than the second person actually has a much fuller and more beautiful life even at a human level we recognize that what scripture says is that we were created to serve god and so the greater god is the more that we see his centrality and glory the greater our lives become as we live them serving him to live and die for god's glory what is more meaningful than that Whose glory is worth more than that? What is greater than to live for the greatest thing that is, right? If we live just serving our greatness, we are squandering life. But when we live serving the all-glorious creator of the universe, then that means that there is actually a significance and a power and a beauty to that life that we live for him. It's a crazy and powerful truth at the center of the biblical story that the more we live for ourselves— the smaller and more worthless our lives end up being. But the more we live for God, the greater we become. So how do we live that out in practice? Let me suggest one practical way to think about growing and living in service and glory for God. And that is to simply ask, what are the crowns that we need to lay down for God's glory? What are the crowns, the ways that we glorify and serve ourselves that we need to instead lay down in a way that glorifies God. Now, those crowns can look like a lot of different things to us, right? I mean, for some people, it's like their career is what they're using to serve and glorify themselves. Again, I mean, work is good. We'll talk about that, you know, in a minute. But but there are, there are ways that you can live in the world that you're gaining your significance and sense of purpose, and your career is all about you, right, and exalting yourself. For some of us, it's our hobbies and what we do for fun, right? We're living life simply to cater to our appetites and, you know, and everything else we do is about sort of just like making it so that we can do these things that we enjoy for fun on the weekends. Um, For some of us, it's our kids. We can totally use our kids to serve up and make, exalt ourselves and glorify ourselves. We are called to lay down those kinds of crowns before the throne of that does not mean that we get rid of those things. I am not saying that you should quit your job and put your kids up for adoption, right? Um, it does maybe mean that we need to think about quitting some of them. I mean, if you're working 90 hours a week, right, like you do probably need to cut back. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're golfing seven days a week, probably, you know, you need to cut back a little bit to, to glorify God. But the main way that we lay those crowns down is by asking how we can turn that thing from serving our glory to serving the glory of God. Name what the crown is and then ask, how can we turn it so instead of using it to serve our glory, we're using it to serve the glory of God? I mean, I think about that with kids a lot because we have three young kids, right? About what it means for me to say, as a parent, the thing I care about for you, you know, far more than anything else in the world, the thing I care about for you is that you love Jesus and live for his glory. That, yeah, I'm going to teach you other things, and there's other parts of life. But, like, all of that is secondary. And the central thing is that you know and glorify the Lord. That that, 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 that means that, like, I mean, if they grow up and live, you know, 
comfortable, easy lives, that's, that's great, and I'm happy, but if they grow up and, you know, read that John Patton quote and go get eaten by cannibals, right, that I, that I weep and grieve, and I say, praise the Lord, because I have raised them well. If that's our highest goal, how does that change how we relate to, you know, to something like parenting? Or even, even more casual things, like, you know, I mentioned hobbies. Like, I remember this guy with sports who, who loved to watch sports on the weekend and kind of came to this point, like, all day and night on Saturday and on Sunday except for church. Um, and he came to realize that that was probably too much. <laughs> he was probably using that in a wrong way. And yeah, he did cut back some. But the other thing he did, which um, he, is he just said, how can I use this to serve Jesus, right? I enjoy this. How can I use it to bless people and serve Jesus? And what he did, ended up doing is he um, started using sports watching as a mission field. And so instead of just, like, sitting at home with the TV, he turned it into this time where he could invite people into life and share food with them and watch sports together. And every weekend, basically, he would just, you know, be calling neighbors and inviting random people to come over. And they had this um, community that started in their house. And the striking thing— and this is not me, right? Like, I'm not spending my Saturdays and Sundays doing that. But, I mean, there were people that ultimately came to know Jesus initially because of the relationships that were forged in that setting where he just tried to turn that into a way to build community. So ask the question, what are my crowns, and what does it look like for me to seek to instead use them to give glory to God? And again, do that recognizing that that is truly the best way to live. We might not want to do it, and we might struggle in that process, but that is a life that is truly good. And the more that we live into it, the deeper a real sense of joy we will find. Because we're spending ourselves, we're laying down our crowns for something far more valuable than we would. That is the consistent testimony of those who've spent their life that way. Let me just read you from John Patton, that same missionary who went for decades and did that, and didn't get eaten by cannibals. But um, reflecting on his life, he says this. He says, as I lay down my pen, let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar to Christ that he might use it as before in similar ministry of love. That the spirit we gain if we have such a vision of God's grace, that living for that God is the noblest service that any human being can spend their life in. So let's be seized with that same vision of his greatness, and so lay our lives down on the altar of service to him. Let's pray. God and Father, you are great and glorious. We worship and praise you, the one who is worthy of all honor and praise power. Pray that you would teach our hearts to be engaged and arrested by that vision that we might so live for you. Pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ.